Oh man, I just love it out here on this uh, fishing boat. Hey buddy boy, throw me that anchor so we can uh, put the boat right here. Uh, this is going to be a good spot for us to do some fishing. Yeehaw! Hey, speaking of anchors, by the way, if you guys want to make an amazing podcast, all you got to do is download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Yeehaw! Hey, buddy, give me a beer so I can drink this. With a, ho, 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 this is some good stuff here. Yeehaw! All right, folks, welcome to another amazing episode of Pitching Popcorn with Brent and Tori. Today's episode, we're going to talk about our favorite movies, and I'm just going to throw in something really special for you guys. Here we go right away. Let's start it off. Come on, baby, don't you want to go? Come on, baby, don't you want to go? Back to that same old place, sweet home Chicago. Well, folks, I want to tell you, this is a very special episode from Brent and Tori. As you know, Brent is from Little Rock, Arkansas, but lives in Texarkana, Texas, right on the border of Arkansas, Texas. And Tori has lived all over the place. She's lived in Orlando, New York, but now she finds her home in Jackson, Michigan. That's right, folks, Jackson, Michigan. How did she go from the big city to the big city to the small city? I don't know, folks, but you got to ask her sometimes. Send us a message. Tell us what you want to hear about. Tell us about your favorite movies and what we can do for you guys out there in podcast land. We'd love to hear from you. Hey, we're going to bring it to you live here in just a few minutes here. Let me finish up this wonderful song here just to get us in the groove, folks. Again, this is going to be an amazing episode. Stay tuned to the very end for a very special guest. It's a karaoke. 99. Look there, baby, I'm old. See what I see. Now hide hey. Baby, don't you want to go? Back to that same old place, sweet home Chicago. This is the episode that everybody has been waiting for, I think. It's, <laughs> it's the one I think you would say, I mean, because you're all about, you know, um, you if if you figure out let's say what's what movies somebody likes then you i think you said this best in one of our previous episodes you were like we get to figure out a little bit more about that person right yeah and how better can our listeners figure out us than to find out what our absolute best most favorite movie in the whole wide world is right yeah you're absolutely right i can't I'm- wait to share uh yeah we've been we've been planning this for a couple weeks so i can't wait to share what our favorite movies are and and why we love them so much that's right that's right and uh being the southern gentleman um i'm gonna let uh ladies go first so i'm gonna let you go first with your favorite how about that does that work wow thank you brent i'm gonna put some butter on it um right this was a tough, I don't, this, it was a tough decision. This is officially my favorite movie, hands down, but I did have some close contenders that I really love. Um, mean Girls being one of them, um, unfortunately, won't be talking about that today. Um, and then Departed is also one of my favorite movies. Um, but my absolute favorite movie of all time is a little biopic that you may know called Cinderella Man. 
Cinderella Man is a 2005 movie, stars Russell Crowe and Renee Zellweger. It's directed by Ron Howard, who you might know is the most wholesome man alive. Uh, it's, like I said, biopic. It's a sports movie. Specifically, it's a boxing movie. Um, and in my humble opinion, boxing movies are one of the best movie genres out there. Um, in fact, doing my research, I found that Russell Crowe actually once said that uh, for screen actors these days, being in a boxing movie is like being in Hamlet because it's such an iconic uh role for them to be able to play um Mm -hmm. so let me let me uh dive in here and tell you a little bit about this movie uh what it's about um so the plot is set in the early 20th century right before the great depression when we meet our main character his name's james j braddock he's doing great he's a successful boxer and he's got an amazing nickname the bulldog of bergen he's got a wife and kids who absolutely love him in a nice big house in new jersey I personally don't really like New Jersey that much, but for someone from there, he's living the dream. Things are good. Things are great, actually. Then bad luck comes to our friend, Mr. Braddock. He breaks his right hand, which is his greatest asset in the ring, loses a series of fights, and eventually loses his boxing license. He loses money in the stock market as the nation enters the Great Depression, and eventually he has to take a manual labor job on the dockyards unloading ships that come into New York Harbor. Because his right hand is so badly injured, Jim has to lean on his left hand to do most of the work. And his left arm actually ends up growing, growing stronger. But the money he's making is not enough. And the family has, they've literally sold their house and most everything that they own. And they end up going on public assistance. And they know eventually that something's going to have to give. Thankfully, just in the nick of time, Jimmy's old manager, his name's Joe Gould, who is played phenomenally by Paul Giamatti, actually was nominated for an Oscar for this. Uh, he just comes out of the woodwork and says he got Jim a fight. Uh, it's a one-time boxing match against the number two fighter in the world, big guy from the Midwest named Corn Griffin. Griffin. To everyone's surprise, the out-of-shape and honestly malnourished uh, Braddock <laughs> knocks out Corn Griffin in the third round, um, and it gets him some prize money, which is the thing he was after, a little bit of cash. Uh, but it also gets him another fight, which no one was expecting. He wasn't supposed to win, but he did. Um, and then Braddock actually wins again and again until he ends up being the f- next person to fight against the heavyweight champion of the world, Max Bayer, a guy who has literally killed two people in the boxing ring. But Jim is just this nice man from New Jersey that has three kids and a wife. And he was just supposed to fight in one fight. So, so what's he going to do? Is he going to fight Max Bear? And if he does, the question on everyone's mind isn't can he win the fight? It's can he survive the fight? And the movie ends up actually culminates in a big 15-round boxing match that just has you on the edge of your seat. I won't tell you exactly how it ends, but except to say that Jim Braddock is able to keep his streak going of never being knocked out. The movie um, is so powerful. And um, one of the reasons I like it is because Jim's struggle is symbolic of all of the struggles around him, um, his community and, and even the entire country during this time. So when Jim's up, everyone's up. And when he's down, everyone's down. And then when he has a chance to win, it really gives everyone hope. Um, so if you want to be inspired, um, definitely check out this movie. Very cool. Very cool. So 
Um, out of out of all of the movies in the world, this is your absolute favorite. Um, why would you Why would you say that this is your absolute favorite? You know, a lot of factors came together. I think. Um, I think so. Just to harp on the idea of boxing movies. So, like I said, bo- boxing movies are a great genre. You got stuff like Rocky, Million Dollar Baby, The Boxer, Raging Bull, The Fighter. Um, and in all these movies, um, the main characters, the inner struggle that they're facing is always representative of this bigger struggle that's going on around them. Um, but I would argue, actually, that in Cinderella Man, the 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 plot and the outer struggle that's happening with his family and then um, what's happening in the country, um, I think that you actually care about that plot a, a lot more even than in some of these other movies. Um, so I think just like that, that personal narrative... Um, of the family is something that really sticks out to me. Um, and then even the, the love story between Jim Braddock and his wife, May, like they really love each other, like for richer and for poorer. And I think that that um, is really beautiful to see on screen. Cause I, I think that element of romantic relationships isn't always portrayed. Um, and I mean, to be honest, <laughs> I think I was probably a sophomore or a junior in high school when I first saw this and I was like with my friends and I think it was probably one of the first times I got to like go to the movies by myself and so that probably made me feel really grown up and cool so (laughs) it's probably burned into burned into my mind that way um but but yeah I mean a lot of reasons I it's also a true story which I think is something that I mean, I know it's em- embellished and dramatized, but um, it's he's a real person, um, Jim Braddock. And, you know, this is a real thing that happened. And so sort of that that triumph of human spirit and hard time is hard times is something that really sticks out to me, too. I think those are the, some of the reasons why I love it. OK. And um, what about the the actors and the actresses in it? Are these some of your favorites from other movies as well? I don't I wouldn't say that actually I like um I like Russell Crowe I like Paul Giamatti I love I like Renee Zellweger a lot she's one of she's one of my she's my girl um but but yeah I don't I don't think it was that necessarily um but I do like I do like I love a story about New York and there are a lot of really great shots of New York here um and I think it's very representative of just the struggles that um, that America is, was going through at the time. Um, yeah, so I, I think, so there's a the quote I wrote down. Um, so there's this guy named Damon Runyon. Um, he's actually the, the reporter that nicknamed Jim Braddock and gave him the name Cinderella Man. Um, but what he said about, what he said about um, this story is, at the time when it was happening in real life is, in all the history of the boxing game, you'll find no greater human interest story to compare with the life and the narrative of James J. Braddock. And I just think that's so cool. And I, I agree. I sign off on it. <laughs> uh, and it's even, I mean, the arc of this movie too, I think is different. Um, a lot of boxing movies are kind of, in some sense, rags to riches stories. And this one is kind of like a, like a riches to rags to greater riches story and um 
there's this great line. Um, it's when when it's right before the the big fight at the end. Jim's being interviewed, and uh, one of the reporters says, "Like you know, hey hey Jimmy, why why are things different now? Why are you why are you doing so good this time? Um, or even better than last time?" And and he says, "Well, hey this this time around, and I know what I'm fighting for." And they they say what? And he says, um, "I'm I'm fighting for milk." And I, I don't know. I just think that's so beautiful because it's not about his. He's not doing it for the the fame or the notoriety. He's doing it to to take care of his family, and that's cool. Wow, that's interesting that you say that because the the story is very similar to what you mentioned in the beginning of our episode tonight you were talking about it 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 kind of um i see a similarity between like success and then kind of things are going down but then things are going to be successful and they're going to be even more successful later right yeah so i think that this movie it it has such um an impact on your life because you have done different things in your life, you know, mm-hmm. you, you've moved to, to new towns and, um, and you've, you've done things that, I mean, I haven't had the courage to do, right. My dream was to move to Hollywood and I, and I never did. Right. But you moved to Orlando and you moved to New York city. I mean, wow. Uh, I mean, that is such an amazing accomplishment. And so I just want to say to you that don't let what's happened in the past week impact your life because things are on the rise again. Oh, right? That's great. That's very kind. Thanks, Brent. Yeah. So uh, but I, I, I saw a lot of that fight in this movie as well. Mm. Uh, and and you're right. I mean, his family was the most important thing. And he was um, at a position where he was at his wit's end and he didn't have enough money. And he had to ask people he knew for money to get him out of a tight spot. And then he breaks his arm and he has to he has to work. He has to find work and it's hard to find work. Right. Mm-hmm. It's- well, because there's so many people that are looking for work and we're talking about daily work where men report to an area and they're selected basically yeah. on the way they look. Mm-hmm. The person that's making the selection is determining whether this person could do the job that needs to be done. And this is a hard labor job. Right. And so, um, he goes in and he gets selected and he has to hide that his arm is broken mm-hmm. to do the job. And there's a point where the boss sees it and he's got his, you know, he's got his buddy there, thankfully, to, to help him uh, wiggle out of that mess. But I mean, it could have been very detrimental. He could have been cut loose right then and there. Yeah. And so his buddy is helping him carry the load, you know, mm-hmm. and, it's it's got um it's really got some amazing things in it um with the relationships uh between the various characters and then the drive and the passion and figuring out your why have you ever have you ever isn't that a sales uh 
it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask you because from my background, I come from an employer that, well, actually I was a 1099 employee during that time, but for many, many years I worked for that company and they always asked us what our why was. Mm-hmm. And so um, what do you think your why is? Right now? Mm-hmm. Right now my why is, uh, f- well, for work, it's, I, I really, really want to finish paying off my student loans this year. And so that's where most of my energy is being concentrated. And <laughs> so it helps me work, helps me work hard and then helps me sit. Well, <laughs> kind of helps me say no to buying stuff. <laughs> right. Right. Well, I knew, <clears throat> I knew there had to be some reason because I mean, you work what 60, 70 hours a week, if not more, I don't know how many hours you work a week, but you put a lot of time in and then you've got, uh, did you, were you a double major or did you have a major and a minor? I had a minor. Yeah. Okay. So you had a major and a minor, but then you went and got your master's degree, right? <laughs> I did. Yeah. I mean, there was a time when I was, um, this was back in the year 2000. Yeah. Back in the year 2000. Um, I was working for a company at at the time that had tuition reimbursement and I was working on my MBA through the university of Phoenix and it was, Oh, cool. It was online. And this was like the first time they started coming out with this online stuff. So it was totally new. And so I I was um, uh, working on that for, I worked on it for about a year. And then that's when Lily was born and she is, you know, she'll be 19 later this Mm -hmm. year. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's crazy to even think back to, well, I'm sorry. You know what it was, uh, she was actually, so I'm job in 2000 and it was 2002 when I was working on the MBA and then she was born in 2003. That's what it was. Cause I was like the math that mad up there. <laughs> she, so, Wait, she, so did you, did you finish the MBA? No, I didn't. Um, not yet. I did. I didn't. Yeah, not yet. Right. That implies uh, that I I have to finish that. Right. (laughs) But, you know, I always said that um, I would do it if my job required me to, you know. Yeah. And so but man, to have the drive to be able to what was the drive for you to be able to get your master's degree? Oh, I just loved, I loved to learn that stuff. Um, It's my, my master's is in theological studies Mm -hmm. and um, that's something I love learning about. And I just wanted to be, I wanted to be someone who could help people um, understand, um, understand the, the Bible and understand God better. And so I was trying to become equipped to do that. Mm-hmm. So that's, that was the thing that motivated me. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. So, um, and then like, well, and I, 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 I think I told you this before, but I was working a, a midnight, I was working a third shift job at the time. So we did have a lot of downtime. So <laughs> uh, it was, it was hard, but I did have, have that going for me too. Man, I remember. So, so your your night shift um i imagine that was what 11 p.m to 7 a.m time frame or what yeah it's something like that okay and it was what five nights a week 
I think so. Yeah. I remember back when I was in college, I was doing, I was looking for, I was looking for ways to get into the TV business. And so I, I went and applied at the WB and, um, and I got a job as a master control operator and it was, it was a part-time job starting out, but then, uh, so it was just part-time on the weekends. Um, I did the 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. shift on Saturdays and Sundays. But so we had, you know, uh, we had a guy that came in from 3 to 11, but he kept messing up the satellite feeds for the for the <laughs> game. Right. And so they asked me, they said, man, we got to we got to make a change here. This guy's not cutting the mustard. So can we change shifts? Can you start doing the 3 to 11? And this guy does the 7 to 3. And I said, sure. Yeah, I can do that. Well, then guess what, Tori, that turned into a, um, an overnight job mm-hmm. working. I was working 32 out of 48 hours. They wanted me to, they wanted me to come in on Saturday from 7 a.m. and work 16 hours straight until 11 p.m. And then come back Sunday and do 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. No. And I was, whoa, man, I can't do that. But you know what I did? What? I um, I went in, I said, well, let's kind of mix the hours up a little bit. I went in Friday night at 10 p.m. and I would work until 6 a.m. Saturday. And then I would come back, I would go home, go to sleep. I'd come back at 2 p.m. and work 16 hours straight until 6 a.m. the next morning. Then I would go sleep and then I would come back and work 3 to 11. <laughs> or, or, it was insane, man. It was insane. I was like a vampire by the time Monday morning rolled around. Oh man, I bet. I well, now we first... now we got now we got cushy jobs with uh, good <laughs> easy easier easier schedules. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so what and we're you... not we're not lifting uh lift doing manual labor down by the docks either. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> so what is it about biopics though that you that 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 you love biopics? I think it's, I mean, I think the idea of it being a a real story is, is appealing and probably I'm someone who's kind of prone to existential crises and like, I don't really like my birthday or anything like that. And I'm always like, what am I doing with my life? Like one of those types of people. And I feel like, um, and I'm processing this right now. Um, (laughs) I feel like with a biopic, it's um it's kind of making a statement about someone's life and what like what it's about and um i think that's probably really appealing to me like like in this movie here it's you know it's this man jim braddock he lived for probably 70 years and um and we're telling a story about him and the story about him is saying that he was a man who was tough and loved his family and like, so I think the idea of like the identity that comes in with that story and kind of like the implied meaning and purpose of life that is there, um, I think I find that really comforting to me to be able to say like, okay, we're learning about this person. This is what this person's about. And so, yeah, I think that, I think that's why I like biopics so much. Okay. Yeah. Well, I've always kind of wondered what, you know, what it was about biopics that you loved. And then I, I did some research on biopics and uh, and I, I looked in, I saw, I saw that there's 
a lot of different categories of biopics. I thought, man, we ought to do a show. There's popular biopics, drama biopics, war biopics, comedy biopics, biopic musicals, biopics, <laughs> crime biopics, romantic biopics. There's something called dramedy biopics, thriller biopics, biopic epics, 1990s biopics. So there's all these different categories that I thought would be would be a lot of fun to do. But um, I, I do I do want to say, Tori, that I think this this film I, I probably would have never seen this film had it not been <laughs> for you and your and your background image of the film. I mean, I knew I knew what the name of the movie was, but I didn't see it until I found out, you know, a little bit more about it from you. And you're right. This movie is a fantastic film. It's a fantastic boxing film. I mean, this is about a man, a good man that prevails in a world where every day is just an invitation to despair. Mm-hmm. It's, resentment would seem fully justified because nobody is looking and nobody cares. Yeah. So in, in a last chance bid to help his family, Braddock, he returns to the ring. No one thought he had a shot. However, he was fueled by something beyond the, the mere competition like you talked about. I mean, uh, and suddenly the ordinary man became the mythic athlete. And so he he rocketed through the ranks until he chose to do the unthinkable and take on the heavyweight champ of the world who you talked about. Right. And this guy was renowned for having killed two men in the ring. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Actually, I read. I'll, let me just interject here. I read that in real life, Max Bayer's family. So in, in the movie, he's portrayed as being like bragging about killing people in the ring. Mm-hmm. And in real life, I guess he actually like went to the hospital with one of the people who he killed. He like went and he died. The guy died in the hospital. And supposedly he was very upset about it. <laughs> and his family actually. Well, well, there's at least one person, one couple people that didn't like the movie because Max Bear's family said that they didn't like that portrayal of him as kind of like live playing up the fact that he was a kill like a killer in the ring. Um, so, but, but even so, I mean, he, he, he put people, put people in the hospital. Oh yeah, he definitely, it was dangerous. Yeah. I mean, and not only was that dangerous, but this was dangerous. This was a dangerous role for Russell Crowe as well, because the, the professional boxers that played his opponents, they were told to land their blows as close to Russell Crowe's body as possible. And unfortunately they sometimes couldn't pull back in time and ended up injuring Russell Crowe, right? (laughs) And I found out some interesting things about this. Um, Cool tidbits. To film the final fight, the seats were filled with 15,000 blow-up dummies with masks and hats. And um, Russell Crowe said that filming the boxing sequences was so brutal that this movie was four to five times more difficult than Gladiator that which he did you know in the year 2000 russell crowe suffered from several concussions and cracked teeth um i also found something really cool about a um the director of photography salvadore totino he invented a tire cam which is a camera cushioned inside of a tire and behind plexiglass and this allowed the professional boxers to hit the tire to create realistic reactions from a first person point of view. Right. Oh, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, 
Yeah. And so, but despite great reviews, this movie didn't earn much money in the end. It made about 108 million at the worldwide box office against a budget of 88 million. Russell Crowe actually lost over 50 pounds for this role. And he spent almost a year training for the boxing sequences. You, you said you were doing some boxing earlier today. Is that right? I was just kidding. I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. All right. I took a well, kickboxing class a couple of years ago. I haven't been oh, oh, scared me okay. scared me too much. I haven't been back. Well, um, Russell also set up a ring and training facilities on his farm in Australia. Uh, he actually dislocated his shoulder while training for the boxing sequences, which actually delayed the filming for two months. So um, he actually he had to learn over three hundred choreographed punches. Uh, in in the film and let's see what are we talking about oh the um now the producer and director ron howard and uh you know talked with russell crowe about this movie back when they were doing the movie called a beautiful mind have you seen that one back in 2000 i sure have yeah oh man directed by ron howard starring russell crowe just like cinderella man yeah and let's see the nickname now what would you say the term cinderella man means well what i thought it meant was that i thought it was just a like a rags to riches story like cinderella Mm -hmm. but a man that's what i thought it meant you thought it meant a man like no like a cinderella like rags to riches but just for to applied to a man Right, right. A, a Cinderella man had married a rich princess charming and allowed his wife to fund their lifestyle. That kind of thing. Oh, no, that's not what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought it meant like a like um a rags to riches story. Oh, okay. Man. Rags to riches. Okay. Well, that kind of that kind of I guess that yeah, that's I didn't a, know it had the bad connotation like right, that. Right, right. Yeah. I, I I took it off on a bad spin there, right? But but <laughs> With a much more it's true though i think that the cinderella the term cinderella man was kind of like an insult it wasn't it wasn't like celebrating his his road it was calling him a wuss basically right <laughs> well you know there's a couple of different interpretations um so let's see um the term cinderella man was once considered an insult similar to calling someone a gigolo that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, and then in 1931, um, in in a movie called Platinum Blonde, uh, there's a, a male lead that calls. Uh, he, um, uh, let's see, he, he it's something about uh, uh, the man. The man in there calls the male lead a Cinderella man, and the lead punches the man and tells him that he wears the pants in the marriage. So I don't know. I guess it was kind of a uh, yeah, kind of an insult. I don't know. Um, but uh, that's uh, that's kind of kind of interesting that it has a couple of different meanings there. Um, now, the sound designer for the film uh, actually used watermelons, beef and broken glass to create the punch sounds. Oh, cool. The real James Braddock or James J. Braddock weighed 17 pounds at birth. 17 pounds. Can you imagine? <laughs> I, yeah. Oh, his poor mom. Yeah, and he was one of five boys and two girls born to his Irish parents. Um, let's see, Russell 
I had to do all of this daily training, including running, swimming, boxing, weightlifting, more boxing and yoga. Um, and let's see what else can we I have talk? a fun fact to share about this film. Sure. So there's a character in Cinderella Man. Her name's Sarah Wilson. Do you remember this character? Mm-hmm. So Sarah is a, a friend of, uh, she plays a friend of Jim's wife, May. Um, and Sarah is played by a real actor. Her name is Rosemary DeWitt. And um, you might know her from, she's in La La Land, Rachel Getting Married, Little Fires Everywhere. And she actually has an arc on Mad Men that I really like. Um, but Ra- Rosemary DeWitt, in real life, she's the real Jim Braddock's granddaughter. So um, she's his real blood. And she, I think she had, to, she had to audition. I mean, they reached out to her to audition, but she had to audition for the part. And she actually got cast in the movie, which I think is very cool. That is really cool. Man, that really brings it home right there. Yeah. Well, I, I'm glad I'm glad that you liked it, Brent. Thanks for watching my favorite movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I was just going to say um, there were some other people that were considered for the lead role. Uh, of course, two of your favorite people, Ben and Matt. Oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> so glad they picked Russell Crowe and not those guys. Right? They were thinking about Clive Owen, Billy Bob Thornton, uh, Mark Wahlberg. Of course, Wahlberg played an Irish boxer in The Fighter in 2010. Yeah, I was going to say, I'd take Mark Wahlberg. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Russell Crowe. It's, Russell Crowe did so good, though. Mm-hmm. And I feel like he, lo- he loved it. Like, what I was reading about the, the production and his input. And, like, he, I think he asked Renee Zellweger to be in the, mo- in the movie, like, for years and years and years. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, it just seems like it was a real labor of love for for him. So I think that I, I think that probably comes through in his performance as well. Oh, yeah. And have you seen that that newer movie with Russell Crowe where he goes so so crazy about um, driving around in a in a car? Have you seen that one where he gained no. all the weight? Mm-mm, no. Oh, my gosh. You're in for a treat. There's one that came out with Russell Crowe, and you won't recognize him. I mean, he gained so much weight for this film, but he is um, in the in this in this particular movie. It came out in the last year or two, and he he catches his uh, significant other uh, cheating on him, and then he mm-hmm. goes he goes crazy nuts, right? And then um, I, I can't talk about some of the things he does, but but there's a point where he's driving around and, and this uh, lady uh, cuts him off and he gets pissed and he starts going after her uh, throughout the rest of the movie. It's called Unhinged. You ever <laughs> heard of this? No. I mean, the dude literally goes unhinged, man. It was crazy. Um, so you'll have to check that one out. Okay. Well, I well, will. Get- all right. Well, um, I, you know, thank you so much for recommending this awesome movie to me and to all of our listeners. Uh, I really did enjoy it. And it's something that uh, I think all, everybody else will as well. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to hear you share about your favorite movie, Brent. Okay. So my favorite movie, um, I really had to think about this one because there was, when I was look when I was narrowing down the search, um, I, uh, I started thinking about the movie 300 and I watched it again 
because I actually have a, I have a tattoo of a Spartan warrior on my arm and it reminds me to, it really reminds me to go into what I call beast mode. Right. (laughs) And yeah, but it's a, it's a reminder. It's a, it's a daily reminder to me to put in that hard work because uh, good things are coming and there's going to be great success and you just have to get past the bad days and, and look forward to the good days, you know? Yeah. And, and um, I have quite a few tattoos. Another one um, is about my dream to travel the world. So it, I've got um, all of the different continents on here and the other tattoos that I have of a Japanese koi and a dragon, they, they represent strength and perseverance and dedication and commitment. And so um, I really had to think about what, what my favorite movie was. And I got to watch in 300 again. And I was like, you know what? I can't, it can't be 300 because you're going to make fun of me. Cause there was just, just guys running around in their underwear. <laughs> I was like, I, I, I you know, I never um, saw three. I can't verify this. I never saw three hundred because it was at the time that it came out. I feel like it was so pervasive, and everyone saw it, and everyone was talking about it. And I was like, I'm not going to go out of my, my way to see this because I'll ha- I'll be forced to watch this movie eventually. And somehow that never happened. So I still haven't seen it. <laughs> oh wow! Well, <laughs> I know, have heard it's great though. Yeah. <clears throat> Well, you know, we have, uh, so uh, we're t- in that movie, we're talking about Leonidas, and we actually, we have a cat named Lee that's named after Leonidas from that movie. So I had to really dig deep to find the, uh, the answer to my favorite movie. And for me, the favorite movie for me um, it, that really just stood out among all other movies, it takes me back to my childhood and uh and and you're a big fan of of the show i'm talking about saturday night live right love it you love that show you've told me that you've (laughs) stayed overnight trying to get in what can you can you expand about about that a little bit oh man um it was a long one of the longest coldest nights of my life um (laughs) but um before it was one of the things I wanted to do before I turned 30 was go see SNL. And so my cousin, Mike, came up to visit me and he and I camped out on the sidewalk overnight, uh, which is how you get tickets. Um, and it was a couple years ago, probably three years ago. And we got tickets to the uh, Jonah Hill show, uh, special musical guest, Maggie Roberts. And... Um, yeah, it was. I mean, it was it was a fun experience. We got there about noon on Friday, and then they give out the tickets seven a.m. on Saturday. So you're you're there for a long time. Ooh. And <laughs> we brought you know we brought camp chairs and sleeping bags and snacks. And um, I mean, they're pretty chill. They let you leave to go to the bathroom and stuff like that. But yeah. it rained. It rained at one point, so it was really uh, cold. And I think it was October, so it did get pretty chilly at night. And um, but the the NBC pages came out like with soup at one point for us and they brought donuts okay. really early in the morning, um, oh, you know, and you make friends with the people in line next to you and stuff like that. So, wow. yeah, I mean, very, very cool experience, but it was tough. <laughs> what an awesome experience. So that's neat that you had a goal that you wanted to have happen before you reached the age of 30. Because for me, my goal was always to see all 50 states before I turned 50. 
So oh, yeah. that you had that you had a similar goal and that you accomplished it. Um, you're actually, well, you're well on your way to accomplishing your goal, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I've got maybe seven or eight left and um, I've actually been to New York City. I was there for like a short three day weekend, I think. And we did a whole bunch of stuff, man. In that time frame, we did go by um, right there at uh, 30 Rock. Um, and so, you know, thinking back on the importance of this this movie, it really goes back to it goes back to Johnny Carson, really. J- Johnny Carson in 1974, he felt like he was working too much, right? And <laughs> had a break. And so um, he wanted to have two nights off, you know? And so they, they started talking about some, uh, some ideas. And um, originally, did you know that Saturday Night Live was originally called NBC's Saturday Night? I did know that. You did, and so it um, so it wasn't until the end of the nineteen seventy six seventy seven season when they started calling it Saturday Night Live, and what I thought thought was so cool about that was the show was also intended to have just six episodes. Can you imagine only having six episodes? No. But on the tenth episode of Saturday Night Live, which aired January seventeenth of nineteen seventy six, and and. You know, I was born in 75, right? Of course, I, I don't remember how old I was when I started sneaking in to watch Saturday Night Live, right? Uh, but, but two characters popped up that would soon define late night comedy, like that, the, the, the Blues Brothers, right? And it wasn't Jake and Elwood Blues as the world knows them or, or you know. Okay, so we're talking about two black-suited musicians who were on a mission from God and, but, but instead John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd, they had their sunglasses. They delivered the blues while they were dressed in these ridiculous bee costumes. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. and do you remember these episodes? Yeah. The bees are, are great. The killer bees. Right. Yeah. And so the, the killer bees um, had been an early staple in uh, of Saturday Night Live, officially becoming the series' first recurring characters. And when I think about characters, I think you have to have one person that's a certain way and another that's a different way, right, mm-hmm. to make them good characters. You know, when you think about um, all of the good comedy acts or comedy movies, you've got two people that are kind of the the opposite of each other, right? Um, and yeah. so in a, in a, uh, a sketch in the show's debut episode titled B hospital, it featured cast members in B costumes running around, uh, labor and delivery ward, trying to figure out whether their child would be a worker, a drone or a queen. <laughs> and so <clears throat> it turns out that the sketch was horrible. It bombed. Right. So NBC felt the need to point out the disaster to Lauren Michaels. Right. They're like, okay you got to cut the bees, right? Well, guess what Lauren Michaels does? He actually put more bees on. He did. (laughs) So the bees continually popped up through Saturday Night Live's first season. And so Lauren Michaels used this as kind of a gag of an ongoing symbol of defiance to the network. And so, but um, so Belushi regularly appeared as a member of the bee colony and now years before their time together on Saturday Night Live, it was actually Dan Aykroyd who opened Belushi's eyes 
and ears to the blues, right? The two found a common love for the genre, but they wouldn't fully invest in the idea of making music together until re relocating to New York for Saturday Night Live. Aykroyd always had a knack for the harmonica and Belushi had always wanted to sing in a rock band. So uh, the duo developed performances by playing local New York club gigs in between their Saturday Night Live responsibilities and eventually Michaels agreed to let them perform prior to show tapings as just kind of a way to warm up the studio crowd, right? But the guys wanted to be on TV and the, the series creator was uneasy about dedicating airtime to an amateur blues performance. Mm -hmm. So they needed, they needed something called a uh, MacGuffin. Have you ever heard of a MacGuffin? No. Okay. What is that? So an, a MacGuffin, so in fiction, a MacGuffin is an object, device, or event that is necessary to the plot and the motivation of the characters, but insignificant, unimportant, or irrelevant in itself. Now, the term was actually originated uh, for, um, for a film adopted by Alfred Hitchcock, right? So the MacGuffin was actually the bees themselves, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, it, was, it was something that kind of got the, the intrigue, you know, the intrigue going here. Yeah. So, so uh, on January 17, 1976, Belushi, he comes up to the microphone. He delivers his first Saturday Night Live blues performance. And to his left is Aykroyd with his harmonica in hand. And this was actually the night that uh, Carrie Fisher was hosting. Ooh. Yeah. And um, more important than that, did you know that at one point in time, Dan Aykroyd and Carrie Fisher were engaged? I found that very hard to believe <laughs> when mm -hmm. I first learned about it the other day, <laughs> mm -hmm. but, um, but yeah, I believe you now. Which is very strange because in the film, there's no romance between Dan Aykroyd's character and Carrie Fisher. There's a bad romance between John <laughs> character and Carrie Fisher's character, right? A bad romance, yes. The bad romance. We've we've talked about bad romances before, right? Mm -hmm. I think that was uh, um, last duel. The last duel. That was the bad romance that you mentioned. I think wasn't it? No, it was uh, the House of Gucci. Oh, that's right, House of Gucci. Right. Lady Gaga. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. But um, so anyway, so so what Belushi does is he comes out and he says, "All right, now." Are you ready for the blues? Now, how many people out there, how many, how many men out there have ever had an old lady leave them? You know, old lady comes up to me, yeah, and she says, you've been messing around. You've been messing around with some other women. And so he says, honey, you just take me as I am or you let me be. You know, so, uh, yeah. And so... <laughs> And then all of a sudden he launches into the song lyrics, singing about searching for his queen, making honey and buzzing around the hive. Right. So John Belushi, he was born in Chicago, uh, a young hellion in grade school. Right. Mm -hmm. But um, he was also the co-captain of the uh, Wheaton Central High School football team. And he was elected homecoming king his senior year. 
he developed an interest in acting and appeared in the, uh, you know, in some high school plays and stuff like that. He was encouraged by his drama teacher uh, to pursue acting. And in the fall of his freshman year at the University of Wisconsin at Whitewater, John changed his image to a bad boy of hair long. And he began to have some problems with discipline and structure. You know, you were talking about having structure earlier, right? Mm -hmm. so he ended up dropping out of Wisconsin and he spent the next two years at the College of DuPage, um, you know, still close to his home. His, his, uh, and then in 1971, he made the leap to Second City. And he absolutely loved Second City. He was doing that six nights a week. And in 1978, while uh, still working on uh, Saturday Night Live, he appeared in a movie called Going South of 1978, which starred and was directed by Jack Nicholson. And it was here that the director, John Landis, noticed that, um, um, you know, uh, he said, man, I've got to cast this guy in my National Lampoon's Animal House. Mm -hmm. So uh, so we did that. And then um, you're not you're not going to believe this. Um, I found out some interesting uh, stuff here. Who would you, if you had to guess, uh, John Belushi's favorite female comedian, who would you say it might be? Um, Gilda Radner. Would you believe it's Lucille Ball? I would. She's great. She's amazing. It's, well, <laughs> I think that because you love Lucille Ball, right? Yeah. I love her too. Yeah. And so, um, and then it's also now, um, we, we do know that, uh, you know, he had, uh, a lot of trouble. He had some demons in his life. Mm -hmm. And matter of fact, Dan Aykroyd used to refer to the green ghost Slimer from the movie Ghostbusters as the ghost of John Belushi. Right. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> And so um, I also saw that uh, John Belushi was a huge fan of Star Trek. He got to play Captain Kirk and he did it so well that uh, even William Shatner confessed that he liked Belushi's performance better than his own. <laughs> uh, That's funny. Now, um, John, uh, he was a diehard Chicago Cubs fan. And even more famously in this movie, Jake and Elwood say that their address is 1060 West Addison Street, which is Wrigley Field, right? Oh, cool. I didn't, I didn't know that. That's yeah. Funny. And so John, of course, has appeared in two films that have been selected for the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. And that is National Lampoon's Animal House of 78 and Blues Brothers of 1980. Mm. Now, John Belushi, he was a wild man, right? And he required an income of $500,000 to a million dollars per year to maintain his entourage as well as, a, as his own lifestyle. <laughs> and, yeah. Now, Dan Aykroyd, was, uh, he was born in Ontario, Canada, and he was a, a criminology and sociology major, but he dropped out before completing his degree. Sociology, uh, that's right. Yeah. And so he worked as a comedian in various Canadian nightclubs and he managed an after hours speakeasy. And then he worked in Second City Stage Troupe in Toronto. Um, and of course, he is uh, he is an avid blues fan. He uh, he hosts a uh, nationally syndicated radio show, House of Blues, uh, you know, plays his character Elwood Blues. 
Uh, we talked about him once being engaged to Carrie Fisher. Uh, he used to work as a mail sorter for Canada's National Postal Service before he became an actor. And on his passport, he lists his occupation as a writer. Um, but he wrote he, Blues Brothers. Yeah, he did. Yeah, and it was as big as a phone book. He wrote he wrote that. It was over 300 pages. Did you see <laughs> I didn't know that. That's funny. Yeah. And uh, so, believe it or not, he met John Belushi in, in Chicago um, at a speakeasy that it was his favorite night spot. And he put on a blues record to play in the background while he and Belushi discussed the possibility of Aykroyd joining Saturday Night Live in 1975. And not only did they hit it off and become good friends, but Belushi became fascinated with the blues that was being played in the background because to Aykroyd's surprise, uh, the Chicago-born Belushi was primarily a fan of heavy metal. Hmm. Um, and so they actually... Um, Aykroyd and Belushi were scheduled to present the first annual Best Visual Effects Oscar at the 1982 Academy Awards, but Belushi died weeks before the ceremony. And Aykroyd presented the award alone. He stated from the podium, my partner would have loved to have been here tonight to present this award uh, since he was a bit of a visual effect himself. Um, also, interesting fact about Dan Aykroyd, he has one blue eye and one green eye. Did you know that? I did not. No. And as a child in the early 1960s, he was diagnosed with Tourette's syndrome and Asperger's syndrome. And these symptoms had mostly subsided by the time he was 14. He's owned or co-owned several bars and restaurants, including the Hard Rock Cafe in New York City and the House of Blues chain. And OK, here it is. Yeah. The original finished script for the Blues Brothers was over 300 pages long, roughly the size of a book. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Uh, so, um, very, you gotta cool think stuff. very highly of your ideas to be able to turn in a script like that, I think. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Very much so. And I mean, it just, it just is amazing to think about something that just started just by pure accident. Uh, yeah. And developed into what it's become. Um, now, Dan Aykroyd is also ambidextrous, um, as you can see from his uh, left-handed uh, writing during his examination scene in the movie Spies Like Us, also a great film, 1985. Um, he owns uh, something called Dan Aykroyd's Wine, which is an Ontario-based distillery and vineyard. Um, I would love to try that someday. I wonder what it tastes like. Yeah, and he actually... Um, he is a part owner of a company that owns the exclusive distribution rights to a Patron tequila for the entire country of Canada. And he's also distilling a vodka crystal head uh, to be, actually he did this a long time ago and he bottled it in a skull shaped glass bottle. And I actually bought one of these. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'd always wanted to get one and I always thought, man, it's too expensive. Um, and so I put it off for a while, but then um, I think uh, I um, I had kind of, a, uh, you know, when you were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, how you'd had a bad week. I think that a couple of weeks ago, I was having a bad week. And on my on my day off, I went over to the, <laughs> the <laughs> store and I was like, OK, I'm going to buy vodka that uh, Dan Aykroyd has. Right. So it's um, good have, for you. 
clear bottles. They had these huge clear bottles. I bought a smaller uh, multicolor bottle, right? And so uh, he now some other cool facts. Um, Dan Aykroyd was considered for Willy Wonka in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory of 2005. Let's see that. He was uh, he was considered for Fred Flintstone in the Flintstones of 1994. Mm. He was the original choice for Garth Holiday in Anchorman: The Legend of Ron Burgundy, and he was going to star um, opposite John Belushi and Steve Martin in Three Amigos, 1986. Oh, in 2015, he appeared in a State Farm insurance commercial along with Jane Curtin as the hey. talking. Insurance. A state farm agent, right? Um, so, but what Dan Aykroyd and Jane Curtin together are just dynamite gold, right? <laughs> Absolute gold. And so, the, the, the basic premise of this film, The Blue Wood and Jake, have been brought up in a Roman Catholic orphanage in Chicago, and they've been introduced to the blues by the janitor. Um, janitor's name is Curtis, who was also played by Cab Calloway in the film. All right. Now, um, the, uh, the, the film's choreography, like its music, it has uh, just a, a lot of different styles to it. And I think that's what really attracted me to this movie, because I think the, um, the other day you had described, described me pretty well on the, uh, on the Instagram, the the Pitching Popcorn Pod Instagram account. Yeah, you Don't were... forget to fo follow us, everybody. <laughs> right. <laughs> follow us on Instagram. And um, I even talked with Tori. I, it was funny. A couple minutes before we started the podcast tonight, I was like, hey, Tori, guess what? We ought to go live on Facebook. And she was like, whoa, I'm not ready for that yet. Let's, let's plan on that. So I'm going to hold her to it. We're going to have to go live on Facebook one night. We will. And, uh, yeah. But um, what's so awesome about this movie um, is that you've got Belushi, Aykroyd, you've got Ray Charles, Aretha Franklin, you've got uh, the choreography blends different theatrical Broadway style, traditional Hollywood numbers, uh, totally cinematic constructions and concert staging. Uh, like we say, James yeah. Brown, Aretha Franklin, Cab Calloway, Ray Charles, John Lee Hooker are all given these pivotal songs to sing. And the use of Chicago as a backdrop to the story of Jake and Elwood has, it actually helped establish Chicago as a city which could serve as a setting for, for many films since mm -hmm. 1980. Now, to bring the Blues Brothers to screen, the filmmakers spent three and a half months on location in Chicago. And let's see, of course the trademark uh, look of Jay Canelwood Blues, shades, hats, black suits has been acknowledged by Aykroyd as being, uh, you know, paying homage to John Lee Hooker and to the jazz and blues musicians of the 1940s and 1950s. And uh, I, I have a fun fact I learned is that uh -huh. John Belushi lost so many pairs of sunglasses during shooting that they kept having to give him new black sunglasses that his nickname on set was the Black Hole. Oh, okay. I didn't know it was that <laughs> nickname. Which seems like him to be losing his stuff all the time. <laughs> right, right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
crazy crazy stuff happening to him when he was uh when he was filming this movie um he actually uh i want to say there was uh, the way the story goes is that he kind of disappeared and he 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 went to uh, he walked in a neighborhood somebody let him in and and just they were like what what are you doing here and they let him sleep there i mean he you just at that time if you can imagine being at that time and being you know having this great success and then having all of those mm. uh temptations uh around uh during that time it's just so unfortunate what what happened to him um you know yeah it really is uh, but some you know some trivia um permission to film in downtown chicago was given after john belushi and dan Aykroyd offered to donate fifty thousand dollars to charity after filming um now there is an all alternate uh, version of the film the collector's edition on dvd it runs 18 minutes longer than their original release uh just a there's um, quite a few things that are different there. Some scenes are longer. Um, mm. There's uh, extra verses, extra uh, shots of dancing. Um, there's, uh, uh, let's see, there's actually some, uh, some, some dialogue in there to when uh, what Dan Aykroyd was doing for a job at that time. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't in the, um, the original version, uh, but neat a neat deal where he um he actually if i remember correctly he he was working at a place and then he basically take this job and shove it kind of thing you know <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. he, couldn't, he couldn't take it anymore so i mean but but these are definitely guys that um they they have big dreams and and they uh, they have a lot of fun uh, accomplishing uh, what they want to accomplish and they don't take no for an answer, you know. Yeah, because they're on a mission from God. That's right, they're on a mission. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I um I really enjoyed watching this. I hadn't I hadn't seen it before, so I I was excited to like it's such a classic that I was excited to have an excuse to set aside two hours and get into it i was to be honest i was a little worried that you were gonna have rose-colored nostalgia glasses on um and it wouldn't be that good but i was wrong <laughs> it was really it was um very enjoyable to watch um and it's very funny in a very absurd way which i'm a big fan of um my favorite scene i think is probably the scene where um elwood takes jake back to his apartment and uh, it's just this like tiny like three by eight room with like a kitchen and a bed in it and it's right next to the l train and every time you see the window there's a train going by um and then carrie fisher's outside and she demolishes the whole building um and that's just i was like once i saw that scene i was like okay i know what kind of movie this is like right. and, and i was i was very into it um and um i like i i think whenever there's whenever there's a movie like this that is connected to Saturday Night Live or like the characters originate in sketches there I think there can be a tendency sometimes instead of having a, like a, an entire cohesive movie to just kind of have like a series of sketches um and this movie I think strays into that a little bit um like they have the different different adventures that they go kind of go on with um you know the nun and then um the 
at the the honky tonk and then uh with the the nazi the nazi group <laughs> um but there's also this like very cohesive like the plot is so simple they're trying to get the money to save the orphanage um and so i think that like keeps them on track and keeps bringing things together um which which i think helps a lot um and yeah so i i love dan Aykroyd in this too um he's so like he's i feel like he's so young and spry and such a good dancer mm-hmm. and um like he's Dan Aykroyd is such a big deal in the modern entertainment world. Um, but my first impression, the first time that I remember seeing Dan Aykroyd is in the 2002 film Crossroads. Have you ever heard of that movie, Brent? Oh. <laughs> it is a movie. Uh, I think it's pretty, I think it's the only movie that Britney Spears has starred in, but it's, <laughs> A coming of age story of mm-hmm. this teenage girl starring Britney Spears and dad, Dan Aykroyd plays her dad. Really? And he's like the middle, he's just like this middle aged, like pot bellied, balding, like, you know, older guy. He's kind of a lame dad that doesn't understand what's going on with her. And that is like so deeply like imprinted on me as to who he is that like whenever I see him. <laughs> doing other stuff i can't disassociate it um (laughs) and it's not a bad thing i love that movie Uh, (laughs) but i just can't look at him and not think of him but it was fun to see him in this way um but and i haven't seen much of john belushi i think i think maybe i've seen animal house once um and i've seen a bunch of old snl sketches but nothing like like seeing a feature film of him like this Mm -hmm. um and there's just like I don't I don't even know how to put it into words, but there's just like something so charming about him. Like he's not really he's not really that good looking, right? <laughs> like he's not like he's not he's not he doesn't look like a movie star, but he like there's just something about him that is like very captivating. And like the scene at the end when when Carrie Fisher like finally tracks him down and she's like got this big rifle pointed in his face and um and he just kind of like sweet talks her and then they and then they kiss and i'm like i don't know how he did it but also i like i understand that that (laughs) i understand what happened (laughs) like she he just like he just charmed her out of uh out of when he was at the at the end uh backed in against the corner um and then yeah just dan Aykroyd and and john belushi together is um is really it's just magical and i was when i was reading reading about the movie um, one of the things that I saw that I really liked was Dan Aykroyd said that uh, John Belushi is the only man he would ever dance with, <laughs> and, uh-huh. <laughs> which I thought was really sweet. And then just you know, obviously very sad that um, Belushi passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and like I don't, the music is just great in here. Like I was actually listening to the soundtrack this week after I watched I watched the movie because it's so good. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, and yeah, so many James Brown, Aretha Franklin, their their own songs. I like Rawhide. That's the best in my. Oh, you like that's your favorite. (laughs) That was my favorite. Um, But yeah, I'm I'm glad I got the chance to watch it. Yeah, well, me too. Um, You know, I um, I've done a few karaoke songs uh, from this movie. I've done uh, I've done Rawhide. And I've done um, 
Oh, let's see. What are what are some of the other ones that that I did? Uh, Sweet Home Chicago did that one. Uh, but my favorite my favorite one is um, it's called Minnie the Moocher. And um, what I would like to do if I can if I can find her real quick, um, I would love to see if we could do. We had so much fun doing that uh, uh, the karaoke singing last time. You know, I yeah. thought if we could um, if we could try one, you know, in honor of uh, our. Uh, my favorite movie here um, i would love that let's do it yeah okay well cool let me see if i can are you uh you gonna do this on your own or are you gonna have a partner yeah i'm gonna see if i can find madison real quick i'm gonna see if she if she bear with me just a second um right. oh while i'm doing that can you tell our listeners about what we're going to our next episode is going to be about oh yeah i would love to so cool. our next episode can you believe january is almost over our next episode is going to be tribute to Valentine's Day. Um, we're going to take you to the wonderful world of Las Vegas um, for Valentine's. So we're going to be featuring some romantic comedies that are set in Vegas. So Vegas for Valentine's coming at you in February. Oh, here she is. Hi, Madison. All right. Take it away, guys. Minnie the Moocher by Brent and Madison. Hey folks, here's the story about Minnie the Moocha. She was a low-down hoochie She was the roughest, toughest friend. But Minnie had a heart as big as a whale. Heidi, 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 Heidi. Hody 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 ho Hody 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 ho Hidi 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 ho She messed around with a bloke named Smokey She loved him though he was cokey He took her down to Chinatown and he showed her how to kick the gong around. Hidey, 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 hidey. Hidey, 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 hidey. Hidey, 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 hidey. Hidey, hidey, She had a dream about the king of Sweden. He gave her things that she was needing. He gave her a home built of gold and steel. A diamond car with the platinum wheels. Howdy, 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 Sit did it, 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 did
He gave her his townhouse and his racing horses. Each meal she ate was a dozen courses. Had a million dollars worth of nickels and dimes. She sat around and counted them a million times. Heidi, 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 Heidi. Heidi, 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 Way to go, Madison. I got at the perfect level. You guys really put some butter on it. We did. We put some butter on it. I like putting some butter on it. Well, thanks for sharing, you guys. Hey, I got to run, all right? Okay, cool. I'll catch you next time. See you next time. Pitching popcorn. Put some butter on it. Thanks for listening to Pitchin' Popcorn with Brent and Tori. We'll see you next time.